0: Welcome to TLD Talks, where we share insights about key legal and business matters that are impacting SMEs today. Bringing together experts from a range of backgrounds, we will be tackling the issues that matter to you. I'm Ed Simpson, CEO of The Legal Director, and I'm joined on today's podcast by one of our very experienced client legal directors, Stephen Britt, and Tash Grossman from tech startup Slip. And we're going to be having a chat about some of the issues that can arise if your business is planning for or unexpectedly experiences very sudden growth. So hello, Stephen and Tash. Thanks for joining me today on the podcast. For the benefit of the listeners, Stephen, could I ask you to introduce yourself and your practice at TLD?
1: Yes. Hi, Ed. Hello, Tash. As Ed said, I'm one of the TLD client legal directors, and I've made a career over the last 25 plus years of being a specialist generalist, been general counsel, sole counsel to a number of organizations of various sizes, right through to multinational, multi-billion euro businesses. And they've been businesses at various stages of their life, from the startup through to planned, powerful growth. I've also had the privilege and pleasure of being the company secretary to a number of those organisations, which has placed me in the boardrooms where you see the benefits sometimes of good governance and sometimes the disadvantage of bad governance and why it's really important to have the basics done right.
0: Thanks, Stephen. And Tash, coming to you, could you please introduce our listeners to Slip?
2: I'm Tash, so I'm the founder and CEO at Slip. Slip is a new retail tech startup, which is trying to solve the problem of digital receipts and customer data. So, when customers are shopping in store, retailers have absolutely no idea who they are. They often are anonymous. And, kind of, the coolest and sexiest way to currently solve that problem is the very manual process of giving out your email address at checkout. So, we spotted a massive gap and room for innovation in that space. So, have built a smartphone app for consumers that allows them to easily collect and store receipts through digital wallet passes, and then give retailers the true omni-channel visibility of their customers. So I started the business about a year and a half ago, now have a team of six, and we're based in London. We're at the in-between pre-seed and seed stage of a company, having raised our first round of funding and invested in product development, and are now starting to bring the product live into market and really define and develop our go-to-market strategy.
0: Fantastic. Thank you, Tash. So the idea for this discussion arose out of an article that you wrote, Stephen, for SME magazine, which featured the Binley mega chippy which became an unexpected overnight sensation. So Stephen, thinking about your experience, what would you say are the key building blocks that any SME should have in place before embarking on a rapid growth strategy?
1: The first thing I'd say is you obviously need a plan and it has to be realistic and you need to map it out on various scenarios, reasonable best case, reasonable worst case. A lot of people stop there and they stick with the financial side of the plan, but it's more important than that. You've got to identify the key risks to your business because you could get killed before you start. So you've got the financial, that, that's to one side, but the other risks are generally classified as strategic, operational, compliance, I would add legal and reputational, because if you don't have those things identified and clear owners for each of them allocated from the get-go, you'll find yourself with no one taking ownership. Once you start getting beyond one person who knows everything, you need to keep a record of the decisions you make. The Companies Act requires you to do that if you're an incorporated entity. But also when you have multiple people involved with multiple responsibilities, you need to clearly delegate those responsibilities in writing so it's very clear what each of those people can do The next thing I'd say, and this is sort of a broader version of the thing I've just discussed is what we've called corporate hygiene. That's about doing things in the right way from the start, Uh, not only because it makes your life a lot easier, but if you are an entity that's planning to grow, people who invest in startups and growing companies for a living are very, very keen on getting their nose into the details so they can actually be very clear about. What you do, what your direction is, and who's responsible for what
0: thanks, Stephen Tash, turning to you as the founder of a business that's poised for rapid growth, is there anything that you would add? What are the sort of things that you've identified that could derail your growth trajectory, and how are you planning for mitigating those those risks?
2: Sure, so I think potentially slightly controversial. I do think a plan's really important, and I agree. Oh, how I agree it's so important to write stuff down. I mean, some of my more senior investors, especially my chairman, is forever telling me that the whole business is in my head and my head only. Um, and that's a huge risk. But I think with a plan, when you're building software and you're a tech startup and your whole premise is about being agile and this concept of failing fast and not seeing failure as a bad thing and actually seeing it as a growth in a lesson, having too much of a rigid plan is sometimes a bad thing. And I think for me and this business, what we try and do is plan monthly, potentially even bi-weekly about what we're building and what we're doing to make sure that, yes, we adopt this growth mindset and we don't settle, but also if things change, it doesn't feel like we've we've mucked up or we've done something bad and actually not sticking to the plan as is, is isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think when it comes to strict governance stuff, it's definitely important to have that all documented and have a plan. But I also think one of the things that I learned was all about term sheets and articles and shareholders agreements, which for me was totally new. And I think that a lot of founders would receive a term sheet and shareholders documents and just sign them without actually even reading through them. But we ended up going backwards and forwards to make sure that they really protected us So I think, yeah, those would be my two or three main points is around, yes, it's important to have a plan, but also recognizing that one of the benefits of being a software company or any startup is your ability to be agile and not have to stick to process, even though process is sometimes good, making sure you read your shareholders documents a lot. And then, yeah, that piece around protecting your name, your reputation, your brand, whenever you can. Our technology is really difficult to paint in and... That's like a whole other world of legal complexity that we haven't even explored yet. But I think how you can, at the very least, protect your brand through a trademark was quite important to us.
0: I, I think it was um, Mike Tyson that came out with the now famous quote that everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. So, you know, whilst I would absolutely agree with Stephen about the importance of having a plan I think having the mindset that the plan might need to change being able to respond to that and I guess for you Tash in sort of startup phase that's really interesting to hear that you say you know sometimes it's changing on a week-to-week basis. Tash I'm very glad that you mentioned shareholders agreements a lot of founders that we come across just sort of skate over that completely and and I'm horrified a number of times I come across businesses that have become quite large and don't have one
1: yeah, shareholders' agreements are always interesting for people, particularly in Tasha's position, who you are know, dealing with professional investors who will have very firm ideas about what's normal, what they want and what they expect. And in any shareholders' agreement, there's at least three parties. There's the company itself, there's the investor who's putting in the shares, and there's the managers, people such as yourself, Tash. And your interests are aligned, but they're not necessarily the same. So an investor will typically have their lawyers produce the documents. And management, as you say, will need to look after their own interests, which may be different from those of the companies. And I've seen what can happen when things go wrong. The people who had the bright idea and who put the first lots of money in effectively ceded control to the investors, and the investors, because they controlled the business, were able to walk away with the lion's share. So what I would say to any managers is take your own legal counsel. That is not the same as the people who are advising the business or the investor. Thanks,
0: Stephen. Your article in SME magazine also mentioned employees. What sort of issues might a fast scaling business face from an HR perspective?
1: There's the obvious thing about, do you have enough employees working enough hours to do the work you want? We do have fairly rigorous rules around what people can be expected to do, how many hours they can expect to do them in. And for a tech business such as yours, Tash, it's clearly quite different. Employee welfare is something that is hugely to the fore these days, and quite rightly so. And unless I'm mistaken, I think employee stress and burnout is possibly the single most significant contributor to people being off work sick through stress. You need to be mindful once you get to a certain stage. If you've got people working too many hours, that's not only bad for them, but it can be bad for you. And the question always comes about, how do you staff up to meet spikes? It's really important you get the right people. We come back to that point about reputational risk. The question to ask is, do you actually need to bring people on the payroll Or can you operate, as some organisations do, with an outsourced model? Do you need to employ the IT people, the HR people, dare I say it, the legal people? Or can they be service providers on a more flexible and more economical basis? The old rule of thumb used to be an employee cost you 225% of their salary. I haven't looked at that recently, but I can't imagine it's got any more favourable. Once you start using contractors, of course, you're into the rather difficult world of off payroll working, the so-called IR35. That needs to be kept under review because once you do trip over a certain turnover, certain assets, a certain number of employees, you can find that you've got to start accounting for whether additional people are employees or not and where the tax liability for that really lies.
0: Tash, how have you staffed your business so far in your growth phase and are you expecting as the business grows are you expecting to have to increase your team rapidly and how are you envisaging that you will do that?
2: So at the moment we are six including myself full-time employees at the company half split between technology so software developers and then business side which is me a founder associate and also sales we at the start worked with a supplier based out in Poland for our app development for exactly the reason that you said around sometimes it's better to use third parties obviously they had the skill sets that we needed and then we had the technical skills to maintain the project in-house for me when I think about growing and scaling the team I look at what's happened in big tech over the last kind of six to nine months of massive redundancies and people being let go. And ultimately there's been this problem and especially in the venture world of high growth scale-ups, which means that as soon as you close another round of funding, people go on absolutely mad hiring sprees because someone one day that decided their headcount was a measure of success, which actually what typically meant is that you had two people doing the job that probably one person could do and no one was working that productively or efficiently. I think for me when I look at where I want the company to grow and scale, I wouldn't hire someone unless I could guarantee and hand on heart say that no one internally could do that role or had the time to do that role to make sure that they're going to be fully utilized because when you're a company that's relying on investor money, every pound matters and I want to be able to feel personally that I could tell any of my investors the value that every single member of my team brings at all times. Also, you know, people are the most complicated part about growing a business. Some people are motivated by money. Some people are motivated by job fulfillment. Everyone is so different. And there's not a one size fits all. So when you are a first time founder, which means you're a first time boss and manager and company owner, how you manage people and employment and dismissal is really important when we had to let someone go i had no idea what we were meant to do i was like is there a legal process how do i find out about this what are we legally entitled to what are they legally entitled to and thankfully there's a lot of resources available around and other founders that have been through similar processes but the people side of the business is definitely for me the most complicated
0: interesting it just made me think there about businesses that do suddenly start to grow very quickly. You don't have the time to kind of learn on the job. And if you're trying to deal with that, when the business is growing at hundred miles an hour and there's everything's urgent all at once, you know, it's partly about having, having clarity, having good people around you and being able to prioritize the right things to take the right decisions where you get in this sort of accelerated growth phase.
1: As you say, Tash, the difficulty of letting people go will become more of a a thing for you, I suspect, over the next couple of years, because people who build the business are not necessarily the right people to run it longer term, and requires different
0: skills at different points, and you've got to be on to that. It's a good point, Stephen. Tash, you mentioned trademarks earlier, and how important it was for you to. Um, uh, protect your trademark your brand i'm guessing for you that wider intellectual property concerns will be relevant so you're um you're creating um a a digital platform you're creating um apps which will be underwritten by software code how are you going about protecting that ip
2: i mean it's really hard with software to create ip in retail there's like this principle called mac which is microservices, API led, headless and and cloud based and it's essentially this idea where everything's open. So the idea of having really closed and private code is actually a hindrance on your business because you want to have open APIs, you want to be accessible to people, you want to be able to build on top of other software. So For us, such a huge part is like first mover advantage in the specific way that we're doing this and and reputation. As much as I think the market's relatively big, I don't think there'll ever be a scenario where you go into a physical retail shop and there's five options of ways to get a digital receipt. I think it will either be ours, the incumbent or paper. I don't think that world will happen. We're always thinking about what about our technology can we create? We own all the IP for anything that is created for our business it, it's tough to find an obvious thing that you can protect but I think if it's always at the forefront of you know making sure that you're protecting what you can.
0: One final question before we wrap up and I ask you for some sort of key takeaways and this is for you Stephen because I know you have a background in insurance so just thinking about a business that suddenly grows incredibly rapidly I we'll have insurance policies in place one would imagine beforehand just thinking about the insurance renewals that we go through as a business I have to make some pretty detailed disclosures as part of that renewal process about the business and what it's done in the last year and what we envisage for the year ahead could there be a scenario where a business grows in a completely unexpected manner and leaves itself underinsured I guess because when they were going through that renewal process, they thought, okay, well, we're going to be at this point. Actually, it turned out to be you know, 10 times further on than that. Yes,
1: and I've seen that. And underinsurance is a huge problem in the insurance market at the minute. I mean, scholarly papers have been written on the subject of underinsurance. But essentially, it means if you don't insure for enough, when it comes around to a claim, you'll only get paid a proportion of your loss. And I say, with rising prices and companies looking to keep their expenses down, that's an area where they are wrongly, in my opinion, seeking to save money. Insurance is always expensive until you need it. This is not a place for amateurs. You need to find someone you can trust. And there are lots of people in the market who say that they can help a potential policyholder. You'll come across names like brokers, your agents, cover holders. Broadly speaking, you want to make sure the person's acting for you, and that will be a broker. You're the broker's client. They owe you a duty of fidelity, and they're the people you can trust to advise you on what covers, what scope, and who you should insure with.
0: Great advice there. Thank you. So we always like to wrap up our podcasts with top tips, thinking about the conversation we've had, thinking about Your experience growing slip, Tash, what would your three key bits of advice be to a founder that's got their business plan they're thinking about, setting off on their journey to global domination and and fast growth? What would you say the the three key things that they should be thinking about?
2: I think the fast, which has been important to me throughout my career, let alone my businesses like mentorship and coaching especially when you're a young founder, like no one at all is expecting you to know the answers to everything and it would be naive and wrong to think that you do. So I think investing in mentorship and coaching, finding someone that's been through the same experience as you, I'd say that's like my number one thing that I have invested in and it's been fundamental in getting me to where I am now. My second is about shareholders agreements and and especially specifically co-founders agreements. The idea of having a co founder is incredibly common now, sometimes two, sometimes multiple. But just because you find someone that has a skill set that you're lacking and you get on does not mean you should sign a co founder's agreement straight away. Most people should work with that person for a number of months before signing anything legal. Because I've seen founder friends who have signed agreements with co founders, it's not worked out and it's just too expensive to get out of it. And they just have to, accept that someone that they really dislike owns a percentage of their business. And my third is just about having like courage and conviction. I mean, you've got to believe that your business and the plan is the right plan. But a lot of that conviction comes from knowing your stuff. So doing the research, speaking to other founders, understanding process. Yeah, those would be my three. Mentoring and coaching, not signing any legal agreements too early or without actually reading them properly and then having conviction in what you're doing.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. And Stephen, what would your three top tips be?
1: Write it down. <laughs> be very clear because as the, the founder or one of the founders, if you have a co-founder arrangement, the accountability will remain with you. Know what it is that makes your business valuable. You talked about the IP now, obviously if you make cars or you make cold or soft drink, it's very clear what you make. Where's the value in what you do? From your outline, Tash, it, it, it's far from straightforward. And of course, when you have trademarks and all those things, don't leave them on the virtual shelf. You have to use them. And always be prepared for the unexpected and know who you can reach out to when certain situations arise. And that. It's about having trust at the early stages, bringing people in on board, inside early so they can be there to, to help support you, to help you keep your belief in yourself.
0: Thanks, Stephen. Um, so Tash, what's next for Slip and where can listeners find out more about your business?
2: We are just in the process now of starting to go live in SMB locations around London before launching with some really big, exciting high street brands over the summer we're actually going out to market for our next fundraise which will be opening in two weeks wanting to use that to invest in product growth and traction and, and marketing as well where can users find us I mean connect with me I love LinkedIn I think it's one of the best platforms in the world we also have presence on LinkedIn as a company as well as Instagram and TikTok and yeah and then also you can download our app from the app store we're doing some work on our SEO so you actually need to type in slip receipts at the moment until you can just type in "slip" and then it will come up.
0: And what's your website address?
2: www.tryslep.com
0: Fantastic. Thank you. That brings us to the end of the podcast. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed our discussion today, you can subscribe to our monthly TLD talks covering a wide range of legal and management topics. You'll find details on our website, www.thelegaldirector.co.uk where you'll also find a link to Stephen's blog about the the Mega Chippy. And you can also find us on Apple, Spotify and Google. If you'd like to know more about preparing for or coping with sudden growth or the wider work of the legal director and how a part-time legal director can save you time and money, then do give us a call on 020 3053 8613 or visit our website.